0: For six decades, Billy Graham shared that message of God's love, that there was a heaven and a hell and a Savior who sent, uh, gave his life and shed his blood to get us to heaven, that God so loved the world. 185 countries and territories, uh, those crusades went forth, 417 crusades in those six decades of life on six continents. Um, how many here uh, actually attended a Billy Graham crusade? It's a lot. Um, some of you, like our own Don Hartog, our pastor of biblical education, came to faith because of the Billy Graham crusade, either listening on TV or, or, or being there personally. Um, here was a man who stood before kings, and presidents and congressmen and, and parliaments and world <laughs> leaders of all kinds and, and average people of all walks of life just sharing the good news. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. The message of, uh, of grace, the message of, uh, of the gospel. Back in 1964, uh, my parents took my sister and myself, I was nine years old, to the uh, Billy Graham crusade in Omaha, Nebraska. And then years later, in 1987, Elise and I took our kids uh, to a Billy Graham crusade in Denver, Colorado. Um, He touched lives um, all those years, almost 60 years of of serving the Lord. What a legacy, a prophetic voice for our times of sharing the good news. 2,800 years ago, there was another prophetic voice who also for almost six decades... Um, shared the the message from God to a hopeless and dark world. His name is Isaiah, and we are beginning a study of the book of Isaiah. I wouldn't doubt that parents took their kids to hear Isaiah preach in the streets of Jerusalem, and those children grew up and took their children to hear the prophet Isaiah speak. And we, 2,800 years uh, later, get to open this book that bears his name and hear those same messages of this great prophet of God, Isaiah. And so this morning I want to continue an introduction I began last week and give a little bit of an understanding of this man, Isaiah. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. And by the time we're finished studying the book of Isaiah, your Bibles will automatically fall to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And again, I would encourage you week after week to bring your scriptures, whether it's uh, on an electronic version or, or your, your Bibles that you bring and open up, uh, because we're going to read passages of scripture, and uh, it's much better for you looking at the Bible than you staring at me, okay? So bring your Bibles so we can uh, read together. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of amos not Amos, but amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Here's a little bit about we, what we know about Isaiah. By the way, I don't know if you caught the, the news article this week, uh, but the archaeological discovery just outside the walls of, uh, of Jerusalem in one of their archaeological digs, they have run across, uh, f- they found a, a little, it's, a, it's like a ring, a size of a ring. It's a, a, a seal, an impression seal. It's a stamp that was used to um, verify documents. You'd, you'd stamp it into, say, wax into a document. And just this week, they came out on the news that they found a stamp that actually has the name Isaiah on it. It comes from the very same period, 2,800 years ago. In fact, 10 feet away, they found another one of those little stamps that has Hezekiah, the king of Judah. So right in the same dig area in that same time period. Here they found, it was, again, came out in the news this week, the signet ring of Isaiah, and then a partial words, the words prophet. So Isaiah the prophet. Um, Let's uh, talk a little bit about this man. His family. His says he's the son of Amaz. Uh, we don't know really much about Amaz, but Jewish uh, tradition says that this man Amaz uh, was the brother of King Amaziah, who was the father of Uzziah, who was the king. And that would make Isaiah, if this tradition is true, he was a cousin to the king of Judah, Uzziah. Now, again, if this is true, that means Isaiah was part of that royal family. He was a a man probably of great uh, gravitas and and, um, high credibility and probably high status. Um, He was a married man. In Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 8, we find that his uh, chapter 8 verse 3, that he had a wife who was a prophetess. She's known as the prophetess. In 8, 3. Now, that may mean that she was just the wife of the prophet Isaiah, or maybe she herself functioned in the role of a prophet as well. She was a, a mouthpiece of God herself in some form or fashion. And we know that he had two sons. In chapter uh, 7, verse 3, he had one son, Shir Yashuv, uh, which means uh, a remnant shall return. And in chapter 8, verse 3, he had another son, Meher Shalahashbaz, Name that to your child someday, <laughs> Meher Shalahazbaz. And that name means uh, quick to plunder and swift to the spoil. Now, he named his sons as a, as a prophetic voice because of the times in which he was living. Uh, quick to the spoil, um, quick to the plunder, Meher Shalahazbaz conjures up the idea of Enemy armies that are about to come and take uh, the Jewish people away into captivity. Quick to plunder, quick, swift to the spoil. And yet, uh, Sher Yashuv means a remnant, though, will return. So, this was kind of a family affair. The prophet Isaiah, his wife, the prophetess, and the two sons that were prophetic in their names. His career what do we know about his career? Well, we know, by the way, that there was prophets to the north, Uh, Hosea and Amos, were prophesying to the uh, ten tribes to the north. Uh, Remember last week we talked about the nation of Israel, the twelve tribes of Jacob, had been split in a civil war, and the ten tribes to the north, they were known as Israel, and then the two tribes to the south, Benjamin and Judah, kept the name, the kingdom of Judah, well, those 10 tribes to the north had prophets Hosea and Amos prophesying to them. And in the south, there was also Micah who was prophesying, as well as Isaiah. But we know, first of all, that he was clearly a prophet of God. If you go over to chapter 6, chapter 6 of Isaiah, it's kind of his commissioning. It's viewed that this is the, the call of, of, uh, of God on Isaiah's life. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that vision in the temple continued. But in verse 8, Isaiah said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. And God responded in verse 9, and he said, Go and tell this people. This is the commissioning of Isaiah. He was a prophet of God. A prophet was a mouthpiece. They simply took the message that God was communicating to them and stood as the mouthpiece of God, heralding and proclaiming the message of God. God. He was first and foremost the prophet. He began his uh, ministry there in 740 B.C., in the year King Uzziah died, 740 B.C. He was also a, histori- a historiographer. According to 2 uh, Chronicles chapter uh, 26, verse 22, it says, The rest of the acts of Uzziah, from the beginning to the end, are recorded by Isaiah the son of Amos. So there's another book out there that is lost in history, but a book that Isaiah wrote of the full details of the history of, if Jewish tradition is correct, his first cousin, Uzziah the king. So he chronicled the life of Uzziah. Wouldn't be fun if they dug that thing up and found that book that Isaiah had written. Uh, he He had a grasp of the times of the history of his people. And thirdly, he was a statesman. He functioned like a um, like like a chaplain to the White House. Here are four kings mentioned: Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. He had their ear. He held their attention. He had a, a place in in high-profile positions. He was a statesman who communicated God's Word. When Hezekiah died in 686 B.C., Isaiah was a a very old man at that time, probably continued on to the reign of Hezekiah's son, Manasseh. We'll talk about that in the weeks to come a little bit. Manasseh was a wicked, wicked king. And again, Jewish tradition tells us that it was under the hand of Manasseh that Isaiah was, was killed. Now, again, we don't know if that's true. That's Jewish tradition that says that um, he was was stuck as an old man, stuck in a log, a hewn-out log, and he was sawn asunder. Now, there's reference to that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. We won't take the time to turn there, but Hebrews chapter 11, 37 talks about... uh, uh, Men and women of old, and, and how they served God and how they suffered, and it says in Hebrews 11:37, that some were even sawn asunder. And again, tradition says that that was Isaiah, that's how he died. What about the character of this man? What about his character? Well we can say clearly, he was a spiritual giant. Going back to that commissioning passage in uh, chapter 6, verse 1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, this incredible scene in the temple. God could have revealed himself to so many different people, but he revealed himself to this man, to Isaiah. There was something about Isaiah, something about his heart for God that God revealed himself in all his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, and Isaiah saw that and heard that. He was humble. He was attentive to God's word. Twenty-five times in the book of Isaiah, he calls God the Holy One of Israel. That's the name he gives him. Only five other times in the whole Old Testament is that title used of God, the Holy One of Israel. But that's how Isaiah knew God. In this vision in the temple, it so um, transformed him, and his heart for God was so uh, sharp and acute, and uh, his heart beat for God. He was the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah walked with God a humble man. He was also, without doubt, an intellectual giant. This man was brilliant, broad knowledge of world affairs, Sh- certainly picking up things as he spent time in the, in the palace area, rubbing shoulders with kings and high officials of, of uh, the government of Judah, a-, a sharp mind of what was going on. He was a scholarly writer, one Old Testament Theologian put it this way, Isaiah's literary ability shows an excellence unsurpassed elsewhere in the Old Testament and seldom matched in any literature. Many sections of his book constitute literary masterpieces. If you are reading through the book of Isaiah right now, and I challenge you to do that, 66 chapters, takes a long time, but you'll see the mastery of Isaiah as he writes um, amazing analogies, uh, clever poetry, understanding of the use of narratives. Um, he had this uh, b- very uh, sharp ability to take words and put them together in very, very meaningful ways. Uh, years ago, uh, when I was in seminar, I actually took an exegetical class on Isaiah, on the book of Isaiah. And one of the things I learned is that this man, Isaiah, used Hebrew words that no one else ever used. He had such a command of language that he, he would use these words, and it's, it's baffled scholars because uh, it's the only place you'll find these Hebrew terms. Um, he was a brilliant, brilliant man that God used in, in uh, these troubling times. A third thing we could say about Isaiah is that he loved his country. He loved his city, Jerusalem. 26 times in his book, he talks about my people. There's a lot of passion with Isaiah for his country, for his people. His heart broke for his people. He knew judgment was coming, their time was running out. He pled for them to turn back to God as he foretold of coming disaster as well as coming blessing. He loved his people and he warned them repeatedly to turn from their sin because judgment was coming. We can also say Isaiah was a very courageous man. Unafraid of kings or priests or public opinion, he just would stand up in the marketplace, stand up in the the palace, stand up in the temple, and proclaim the word of the Lord with strength, with power, with courage. For 60 years, the voice of Isaiah was heard, this courageous man. But in order to really understand this book of Isaiah, we, we have to understand it in its historical context. We, we just aren't going to understand or get the value out of this book and, and understand his writings if we don't understand something about the times in which he lived and which she wrote. Um, of course, there were these massive world powers all at play. It was a time of great upheaval, of great uncertainty. You had Egypt, of course, to the south. You had Babylonia, clear to the east. But the dominant world power for actually 300 years was what was called the, 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 the Neo-Assyrian power. For 300 years, it was the Assyrians, that ruled the roost, that dominated the world scene. Uh, throughout uh, Isaiah's prophetic career of six years, it was As- Assyria that was the threat to the people all around the region. Let me tell you a little bit about Assyria. Assyria, in, in, in 745 B.C., five years before Isaiah began his prophetic ministry in 740. In 745 B.C., a new emperor took charge of the empire of Assyria. His name was Tiglath-Pileser III. Nice name for a cat or a dog, maybe. (laughs) Tiglath-Pileser III. Here was a man who was a skilled warrior, a shrewd political leader. But when he came to power, life in the ancient Near East changed dramatically because he took his warrior strength and his shrewd political um, mentality and he went to conquer the world. He was ruthless. He was merciless and he galvanized the Neo-Assyrian Empire, and he went a-conquering to the north of him, to the west of him, to the east of him, to the south of him, amassing his thousands and hundreds of thousands of armies and marched against surrounding nations. He would assert control over defeated territories by deporting people from those territories to different regions back to the north in the Assyrian Empire, predominantly high-class people, more the uh, intelligentsia and the, the um, high-political uh, people and the high-profile people, the high-class people of these areas. He would take them, and, and I'm not going to get into the gory details. You can Google it and read it um, yourself of, of the, the tactics that he used. I will say this that when he would deport these people uh, out from their countries to different regions of, uh, of Assyria, he would put a ring in their nose, his, uh, history tells us, and tie them all together with a rope and lead them northward out of their territories, out of their country, uh, settle them in different spots of the northern Assyrian regions. And then he would move key people of Assyria into those vacant areas, those voids, So he transports people out. He brings other people in. The remaining conquered people are now poor and left dependent and very fearful. He controlled with an iron fist. Again, his tactics were gruesome. He was a butcher. There's no question about it. By the way, Years later, when Jesus, 800 years later, when Jesus is walking this earth, in John chapter 4, it says that he was going from the regions of Galilee to the north and was going back to Jerusalem, Judea. And it says, and he had to go through Samaria. Samaria was that center portion in Palestine. It was occupied by Samaritans. You know who the Samaritans were. Over 800 years after Tiglath Pileser conquered Israel in 722 BC. And he took the people of Israel and he put rings in their noses and tied them together with ropes and he hauled them and separated them in different parts of his kingdom. He brought in other Assyrians and over those 800 years they began to commingle with the remaining poor, dependent Israelites. And a whole group of people were generated called the Samaritans, these these half-breeds. And that's why the Jewish people in Jesus' day hated those Samaritans. Tiglath-Pileser died in 727 B.C., so he wasn't the king and ruler who conquered Israel. Uh, After him was his son, Shalmaneser V, and then Sargon II that came against Israel to the north and conquered them, and Syria as well, also known as as uh, Aram. Israel and Syria were vassal states. They were paying tribute until they mounted a rebellion against Assyria. They got together and says, look, if we pool our resources and our armies, maybe we can fight the oppression of the Assyrians. They went down south to Judah. At that time, it was King Ahaz. We'll go into this a little bit more, but King Ahaz, and they said to Ahaz, join us, and together we can fight against and Ahaz said, no. Ahaz said uh, he began to uh, play up to uh, Tiglath-Pileser and, and Shalmaneser V and Sargon. And, um, and so there was a war against Judah by Israel and Syria. And, and I'm just simply sharing all this to tell you that the, the times were in deep conflict. There was great upheaval in this whole region. It was basically survival of the fittest. The strongest would survive and the strongest hands down for 300 years and specifically from the time of of Uzziah uh, and and Isaiah's prophetic reign on for the next 150 years. It was Assyria, the dominant (coughs) crushing force of the world that struck fear into the hearts of anyone. These were the times in which Isaiah wrote. And we have to understand this if we're going to understand the writings of Isaiah. The kings of Judah mentions there in verse 1, there were four of them, Uzziah and his reign, and Jothan and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, this morning, I want to just read a few passages over in 2 Chronicles. So turn back to 2 Chronicles, chapter 26. Let's just read some of the, the history of these four kings of Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 26, verse 1. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in the place of his father, Amaziah. And he built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jackaliah of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 4. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Here was one of the good kings, Uzziah. By the way, if you, me- if you re- recall, I mentioned last week, in the northern kingdom of Israel that was now in 722 B.C., um, annihilated by Assyrians. There were 19 kings that ruled in the northern kingdom of Israel. Not one of them walked and followed the Lord. Not one of them. Uzziah did according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, verse 5, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. He went out, verse 6, and warred against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod, and he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped them against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and the Mennonites. It goes on, the Ammonites, and he, he, he built in, uh, towers and, and uh, throughout his land, uh, verse 10, he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock in the lowlands and the plains. He also had plowmen and vine dresses in the hill country and the fertile fields, for he loved the soil. So he prospered the the people of Judah. Moreover, verse 11, Uzziah had an army ready for battle. Jump down to verse 13. How big was this elite army? Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 men who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. He had power, strength. He had commercial abilities. Under Uzziah, the the people of Judea prospered. Verse 14, Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army, shields and spears, helmets, body armor, bows and, and sling stones. In Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers, on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones, these war machines. Hence his name, his fame spread afar for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. Mark that and mark it well, the last little phrase. Look at it. Do you see it in your text? Look in your Bibles. This is a Bible church. Bring your Bibles. Look in your Bibles. He was marvelously helped until he was strong. Now, we'll learn a little bit more about Uzziah. But let me just say this. He became so prosperous, he was so successful, it went to his head. And he did something he should not have done. He entered, went into the temple to think that he could bring an offering before the Lord. He was so proud of himself. And the priest met up at the door and said, You can't do this, you're crossing a line. You can't go here, Uzziah. You're the king. We're the priests. He got mad at them. In that moment, God struck him with leprosy. He lived the rest of his days, I think it was 12 more years, in a separate dwelling as a leper because it went to his head. For 52 years, he reigned. He followed the Lord. The Lord marvelously helped him until he was strong. Go over to chapter 27. His son Jothan was 25 years old. When he became king, he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, he didn't enter the temple of the Lord. Smart boy, he learned from his father. He went one step beyond the goodness of his dad. He knew the boundaries, and he kept that. But notice again the last part of verse 2. Do you see that last phrase? But the people continually or continued acting corruptly. The people of Judah. He walked in the way of God, as Uzziah for the most part had done, but it was the people. Something wasn't clicking with the people. The people acted corruptly. There was a disconnect between what was going on in the palace and the people. Oftentimes, you'd think it would be the other way around. The people would walk with God, but it was the irreligious leaders. In this case, it was the leaders who were walking with God. But it didn't translate down to the people. Now go over to chapter 28. Jothan died, and his son Ahaz became king. He was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years. And notice what it says. He did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David, his father, had done. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, all 19 that were evil. He made molten images of the Baals. He burned incense, verse 3, in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He burned his sons in the fire. He made his sons walk through the fire. You know what that is? Child sacrifice. He took his own kids and sacrificed them to the pagan gods. The abominations of the nations he followed. Verse 4, he sacrificed. He burnt incense on in the high places, on the hills and under every green tree. And wherefore the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him. It goes on in verse 22. Now in the time of his distress, the same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to the Lord. It's like just when you think it can't get any worse, it got worse. He sacrificed to the gods of Damascus after he was defeated by the king of Syria, king of Aram. He defeated them, uh, and he said, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped them, I'll sacrifice to them. Maybe they'll help me. And they became the downfall of him and all of Israel. Moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he kept the utensils of the house of God in pieces, closed the doors of the house of the Lord. In other words, he shuttered the temple of God. He closed the doors, and he made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem, in every city of Judah. He made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoked the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. This was the day of Isaiah. He experienced the goodness of of Jothan, the final years of Uzziah. And then he experienced the evil of Ahaz. Ahaz died and his son became king. And I would just want to read over in 2 Kings chapter 18, a brief account of Hezekiah. Ahaz went from bad to worse. What about his son, Hezekiah? Chapter 18, 2 Kings, verse 1. Now came about on the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the king of, or the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years. Verse 3. And he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars and cut the Asherah. He broke to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. The people were using that in a pagan way for adulterous worship. Verse 5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah and none among those who were before him. That's amazing. Hezekiah, there was no one like him before. There was no one like him afterwards. He reigned supreme. He had a heart for God. Do you think Isaiah played in hand in that? Oh, he did. And we'll see and study that as we study the book of Isaiah. Uh, Hezekiah restored the temple worship. He brought back the feasts and the celebration of Passover. There was a uh, Uh, a heart of revival, at least in his heart. But what about the people? These were troubling days. I'm just sharing briefly this historical background to help you understand. The geopolitical scene was tumultuous. You never knew if you would wake up one morning if the Assyrian hordes would be down upon you doing the atrocities that they did to men, women, and children. Ahaz and all his wickedness, all that was going on among the people who were acting corruptly. Sixty years, 60 long years, Isaiah spoke God's Word into the midst of this tumultuous situation. Sixty years, leaders and the people of Judah heard him call out this simple message. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. I know the Assyrians are coming. I know they're ruthless. I know what they did to our brothers and sisters in Israel. It is no more Israel. The ten tribes are gone I know they're surrounding us, but salvation is of the Lord. This was Isaiah's message. That's what his name meant. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. And every time his name was spoken, people were saying, being reminded, salvation is of the Lord. Hey, let's go down and hear Isaiah today. Let's go down and hear salvation is of the Lord today. Did you hear what salvation of the Lord said today in the marketplace? Why, I just read that salvation of the Lord said this. He prophesied this. Can you believe that salvation of the Lord? That was his singular message. You can trust in your armaments, you can trust in this, your well fortified cities, you can trust in your elaborate plans. It'll get you nowhere. You have to trust in the Lord. And the problems of ancient Israelites of the 8th century B.C. are not much different than the problems of 21st century today. Oh, there might not be Assyrian hordes at our borders coming in. There's plenty of international intrigue and concern. You know, Back in those days, 2,800 years ago, there was not... Cable news 24-7 and reports online and, and, and wherever, all the social media giving you minute-by-minute minute updates of the atrocities that were happening around the world. But believe you me, word was coming. People knew. Today, our world is a mess. Whether it's a North Korean or Islamic jihadist or mentally sick mass killers... Maybe it's illicit drugs and opioids that are killing tens and thousands of our citizens in this country. Maybe it's simply the prosperity and materialism that is eating out the very soul of this country. What are the Assyrians that are coming up in your life? What what, what grabs your heart when you get up tomorrow morning? And squeezes the life out of it, maybe in fear. Old memories that won't go away, past sins or evil choices that you made that somehow you just continue to haunt you. Financial distresses, broken relationships, destruction. Who the who are the Assyrian hordes? And the question for us, do we hear Isaiah? Where do we put our trust? It's a decision that every one of us, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, every morning we have to get up and make a a choice. Who do we follow? Is the Lord my salvation? Is he my hope? Do I have an intimate relationship with Him? Do I see Him as holy, 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 the Holy One of Israel, Lord God of Almighty, in You I trust? Do we find comfort? Do we find hope in the things that we see and what we can produce or the things that we don't see? Do we walk by faith or are we walking by sight? And every morning we've got to wake up and make that choice. Because in some form or fashion, there's an enemy at the gate pressing in on us, fear or hopelessness. Is the Lord our deliverer? Is Isaiah being heard in our heart today? Is he my salvation? It starts with having a personal relationship with him. I hope everyone in this room does. I hope you can be an Isaiah to somebody. That's what this conference coming up is all about. How can I how can I project into you hope and comfort and, and a call to to trust the Lord? And I'm I need that. The body of Christ together. But it starts with you knowing him personally. And so let me end where we began this morning. God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son, the deliverer, the suffering servant that Isaiah so richly will tell us about. And Jesus came into this world to pay the penalty for your sins because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner, and that earns us a one-way ticket to hell. And don't think for one moment you can be good enough to get to heaven just by doing good works. That's a lie from Satan. And if you die today without having put your trust in Jesus Christ on the authority of the Scriptures, you will spend a Christless, godless eternity in hell. But there's a free gift for you. God loves you, and he gave his son to die for you. And this morning I'm asking you to put your trust in him if you've never done that before. Don't you dare walk out of here. Without understanding this truth, there's a God in heaven who paid for your sins. He shed his blood on the cross. He rose again triumphant, and he's the only ticket to heaven. He did all the work, and he simply offers the free gift. Will you believe him? Will you accept that free gift right now by simply believing that good news about Jesus? Will you trust him as your Savior? And then heed the call of Isaiah. Live your life every day with the understanding, he is my salvation. And when others around you start slipping with that, you speak that prophetic voice into them too. He is your salvation. That's how we live a life in a tumultuous times. God is our salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us this privilege to handle, to touch, to study ancient literature that is holy. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's your heart and delivered through a prophet much like the prophet who has gone to be with you this week. We're grateful, Lord, that we can study this book, and I pray that you'd give us insight and understanding and, and strengthen our faith, Father, in these troubled times in which we live. We're grateful, Lord, so grateful as we worship you now. As we hear this call of the kingdom, we're grateful that we have a king, we have a savior, we have a redeemer. Lord, you are our salvation. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.